0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Muscoota, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So just this past week, uh, we got to meet on uh, Tuesday with some of our gospel community um, for uh, just a meal. Um, Our oldest had a basketball game out in Highland, and so gospel community... For us, looked like a number of us meeting for dinner at a restaurant out in Highland and some of our gospel community coming to uh, a seventh-grade basketball game. And so, I love you. It's a great game. Uh, that is commitment to community for some people. Okay, That is deep, sacrificial, gospel-formed community to be involved at that level of life that you are invested in other people's children's middle school Sports games, but that's living life together as Christ followers, all right? Um, while we were there, we were just kind of reminiscing about uh, our stories and where we came from and, and things that had occurred in the past and things that we liked in the past. And one of the topics that came up that we kind of it overflowed into our family was just discussions about television programs and things that we watched back then, right? And so a couple years ago, it was, it was real exciting to us until I watched it Um, because there was a reprisal of one of my favorite shows, uh, Full House, that came out a few years ago. Uh, Yes, whoop, whoop, yep, thank you for that. Um, And so we were talking about Full House and Saved by the Bell and Family Matters and all of those good shows. And as I was just kind of thinking about the ebbs and flows of television programs in my life, um, I got to a period of time uh, when Rachel and I were in our first year of marriage and I was in grad school. And so we had a brand new baby, zero money, And no friends because I was in grad school, and so we watched a lot of television together. That's what that was like—date night, baby. Semi goes to sleep, so we watched some television. And when I when I was thinking about the shows, all of the shows we watched had one major theme in common. It was the theme of makeovers. I don't know what it was about, like the late two thousands, but every TV show appeared obsessed with the idea of makeovers. And, and I think it kind of functions around this, right? People don't want small incremental change over a long period of time. We want big, complete, instantaneous change. Right, so maybe you guys remember uh, there was a show, I promise my wife made me watch it, it wasn't my choice. It might have been the other way around. It was on like E! called What Not to Wear. Anybody remember that show? Good, four people, all of them women. Um, Yeah, Uh, men, you guys can just be honest with yourself here, right? You love fashion TV shows, that's all right. This is a safe place because of Jesus. All right, What Not to Wear. Anybody remember, everybody's got to remember this show, Uh, Extreme Home Makeover? Yeah, everybody remembers that show and everybody thought their home could one day look like that until you tried to DIY it, and then it went terribly wrong, right? So everybody remembers that one. And my favorite, I think it was Tuesday nights, if I get it right, Rachel and I would sit down with a big bowl of ice cream, and we would watch together The Biggest Loser. You guys remember that show? Yeah, so uh, again, all of these shows, the big premise was how you started the show looked nothing like how you ended the show. There was always a huge reveal, and everybody would say, is that the same person? Is that the same house? Right? Right? At our core, that desire makes utter sense. There is a universal understanding amongst all humans, whether you are Christ followers or not, that you in this world is not as it ought be. Right? If you had to describe, quite honestly, what most of us spend our lives doing, dedicating our lives to, it's trying to change. Change our circumstances, change our relationships, trying to change our clothes, our fashion, our looks, whatever it might be. I didn't mean like trying to change your clothes, like still trying to figure out how to take a t-shirt off and put one on. Uh, Hopefully you guys are at that place at this point in time. But as Christ followers, we're told that we don't have to spend our lives trying to change because the gospel has fundamentally, foundationally changed us completely, utterly changed us. Paul, in his second letter uh, to the church in Corinth, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come." He writes in similar kind of radical language in his letter to the church in Ephesus when he says in chapter 2 that you were once dead in your sin and trespasses, but now you have been made alive in Christ Jesus. We are utterly different. We are not incrementally different. We are a new creation. We have gone from death to life. C.S. Lewis captures this, this This grand change from the dead us to the new us when he says this. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's he's talking about what we will be one day in eternity. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you will ever meet or talk to may one day be a creature in glory that if you saw him or her right now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's saying that in light of Christ Jesus and the Gospel, we have gone from a creature that was to be despised because we were trapped in the bondage of sin and slavery to what we are now in Christ Jesus and will fully be revealed to be in glory that that gap is so monumental so momentous that we simply cannot get our arms our minds around it the christian life is not meant becoming better it's not lived changing the christian life hear this because if you've been in the church you have heard that the christian life is primarily about you getting better trying harder And incrementally changing. And hear this from me and primarily from the Word of God. It's not. It's about you realizing that you have already changed. It is about you understanding that Christ, by His life, death, and resurrection, has fundamentally, foundationally, eternally already changed you. Last week as we looked at the book of Philemon, we looked at the person of Onesimus, a runaway slave who sinned against his master in some way, shape, or form, left him, came to Christ through the ministry of Paul, and Paul then sends him back to be reconciled to Philemon, his master that he had sinned against. And now this week, we are looking at the man Philemon who this letter is written to. And again, we're going to find that Philemon is fundamentally different. Paul points it out again and again and again because of the Gospel. I was talking to Rachel about this kind of idea that we're walking through that the Gospel radically changed us. And and the picture that came into my head was this. Uh, over the last two decades, I think there's been three different Spider-Man movie series that's come out. Right? But in every single one of them, there is a scene where Spider-Man becomes Spider-Man. Right? He gets bit by the spider in some way, shape, or form, and then he discovers that he has these new powers. And he goes swinging through New York City, discovering all the amazing things that he can do now that he's a superhero right? Stay with me on my logic. The Christian life should be like that. Now, I'm not saying go jump off tall buildings because then I'll have to do your funeral, and we'll talk about how it's so wonderful that the Lord changed you before that day occurred. But what I am saying is that the life of a Christ follower, like the life of Onesimus and Philemon, should be a joyful, ongoing experience where you and I say something like this, I didn't know that that was true about me. I didn't know that that had occurred to me. I didn't know that that's the type of life I now have. I didn't know that that's the type of hope I now have. I didn't know that that's the way that I've been loved now. Again and again, this should be what we say, and it's why we walk life out in gospel community together. So this morning, again, let me tell you how Paul tells Philemon that his life has changed. Here's the problem. We have six points today. Now, some of you just cringed. I saw it. I saw it. I saw you do it. That's okay. We're going to go quickly today, okay? Typically, three points gets us 45-ish minutes. We're going to do six points in about 25 minutes. Let me give you one more caveat as your pastor before we jump into it. You're going to take notes, and I love that if you're a note-taker, you're going to take all six notes. The Lord is likely not going to speak to you about all six points and the forsaken number of sub-points that I have underneath of them. So what I want you to do, and we're about to pray and ask the Lord to do this, is ask for Him to speak to you once. To, To hear one thing that the Lord is pressing in on One place He wants to encourage you. One place He wants to convict you. One place He wants you to see that He has changed you because of the Gospel. So let's pray together. Let's ask Him that He will do that now and then let's jump into how the Gospel changed Philemon and has changed us. Pray with me. Father, that is our request. It's simple. It's short, God. But it is what we need, which is to hear from You. God, we don't need information. Uh, We don't need exegesis. God, we don't need good stories or analogies. God, we need to hear from you. Your word changes dead men and women into those that are eternally alive. God, you can soften our hearts. You can awaken us to new life in Christ Jesus, if only you will speak, and so will you do that now for us. In Christ's name, amen. Six ways that Philemon is changed. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll run through them. First, the gospel makes him and us recipients of grace and peace. Recipients of grace and peace. The gospel also makes us members of one another, members of one another. The gospel makes us ambassadors of reconciliation. It also makes us a growing family marked by forgiveness and powerful in prayer. If you didn't catch them all, I'll say them again. First, recipients of grace. Paul begins the letter to Philemon this way. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, likely his wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, possibly Philemon's son in the church in your house. Then he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look almost every letter that Paul has written in the New Testament you will see that in his greeting, he will say some version of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when, when it was common in those day and ages, when you would write letters like this, whether personally or to larger groups, that there would be some form of salutation. I think I'm using that word right. If you think back to your elementary school days, before you had to write a five-paragraph essay, you learned how to write a letter. Not my children. They don't know how to write letters, nor do your children if they're young because they don't teach that anymore. I think they can send text messages or Snapchats now, but that's probably the extent of communication, okay? But there was always a salutation, right? You, you first said who it was towards, and then you put some sort of bland little sentence to introduce the letter that you were writing. In Greek culture during this time, the, the word that was traditionally used was Karis, grace to you. But the Hebrew culture that Paul was coming out of and many of the people he was writing to traditionally greeted each other with another word, shalom, which roughly translated to peace. And so Paul, knowing that he is writing to both a Jew and Gentile culture, seemingly mixes the two together and says, grace and peace to you. But Paul is also saying something far more significant. He's not just kind of giving a throwaway statement as if someone sneezed and Paul said, "Bless you." Right? No one ever hears someone say "bless you" after they sneeze and think, "My life just got better. They have blessed me." Right? Like if I offered you 50 bucks when you sneeze rather than "bless you," you would like me way better. You'd be like, this. I like this guy. I'm going to go to his church. Right? Like no one goes, man, that, he just, they just laid a blessing upon me. Like we're not a people of blessing. But Paul is not just uttering empty words. As a matter of fact, he's uttering powerful words. Because he's uttering the words of Jesus. And if you don't think that Jesus' words have power... Go back to Genesis 1, when He, the Word of God, speaks all creation into existence. God speaks, and it is so. After Jesus is crucified and resurrected, He shows up to the disciples. You know the first thing He says to those men whose lives have just been turned upside down, that are in hiding for their lives? He says to them, peace be to you. He shows up and he says, because of my gracious act of salvation, you have eternal peace. This is what Paul is saying to Philemon. You have been given a grace that leads to eternal peace. And that word peace, shalom, doesn't just mean a ceasing of hostilities. It means wholeness, fullness, as things ought to be. And this is where the change for us in the Gospel starts. That by Christ, we have been given a gracious, unmerited gift that leads us to great peace. The first change, the Gospel makes us recipients of grace and peace and then members of one another. You know, historically, cultures have seen themselves and have defined themselves not by their own individual identity, but by the identity of those that they were associated with. So in almost every other culture up into kind of the last 100 or 200 years in the West, who you were, your position and status in life was not determined by you, it was determined by your family, your tribe, your clan, your people group. Right? Like, if you move to Muscouta, if you're not a military couple, but if you've been in Muscouta for a while, you'll know, or if you've been a part of another small town, there are certain names in every small town. Right? Like, there's like four families that populate 70% of Miskuda. and And you can just start like, you don't need Ancestry.com, right? You just need to talk to a couple people in Muscuda. You can, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, six degrees of Norenburns or Mueller's, right? Millers in Muscuda. It's something German around here. We associate and have traditionally associated who we are based on other people, but not now, not in this culture, and not in this time. Now, who you are, your identity, your status, is all about you. You define you. You define who you are. You define what you will be. Right? We use phrases like, I am the captain of my own ship, master of my own destiny. Or we say things like, you can't tell me what to do. Right? For 2,000 years, the answer was, yes, I can. Right? Right? We, we don't like other people pushing in. Even the, the gracious, amazing gift of marriage has now been labeled as oftentimes a burden in our society. It's why so many people in their 20s and 30s are deciding at this point in time not to get married because it ties you down. Right? That's not me, just in case you're wondering. It's the Holy Ghost of this heater <laughs> off to my left. All right, so make a joyful noise, right? The truth is, right, we use terms like the old ball and chain. What a beautiful way to describe our spouse, right? It's, marriage is wonderful. It's like being in a dungeon, tied to something I can't get away from even if I want to. But we do that because we don't like being connected and interconnected to other people. The problem with that, you were created to be that. You and I were created as parts of a whole. (coughs) And sin fractured that whole. It put us at odds with our Creator, and it put us at odds with one another. Now when you look at Paul's letter and his commendation to Philemon in verses 4 down through 7, his primary commendation of Philemon is essentially this. You have understood that the gospel has reconciled you back to the one another's that you were created to live in. You get the fact that you are not your own, but you are members of a body. He commends him by saying, I have heard that you have shared your faith with the saints. And that doesn't mean that he has evangelized or told his faith. It's the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship, partnership, deep intimate oneness and paul says to him good job philemon you have gotten the central fact that the gospel does not just save individual you it saves you into a people a body it saves you into a family and you have to get this because if you don't the rest of the letter and what paul requests of philemon with onesimus makes no sense I really hope you are sick and tired of hearing the announcement about gospel community that we make every single Sunday. Because perhaps that means we've made it enough. But the truth of the matter is, we're not fighting just to announce gospel community. We're fighting against the tide of an entire culture that says, I do as I please, I do as I see fit. I do as I see benefit, and I'm here to tell you, no. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden when they're about to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord says, don't, please don't. Do as I've created you to be. Do as I have made you. Do as I have taught you, instructed you, called you into, because there is life that is flourishing, and He has made us members of one another. You know, I've always loved asking people, like, what's the book of Exodus about? And they're like, freedom! I'm like, yeah, it's true. Israel gets freed out of slavery in Egypt. You know what they get freed into? the lordship of God. Right? Like, a fish is not free because they jump out of the water and land on the beach. You know what happens when they do that? They die. That's not freedom. Freedom is being Freed from the bondage of slavery, sin, and death into what the Lord has created us to be, which is alive in Christ and in Christ one to another. The gospel makes us members of one another. The gospel also makes us ambassadors of reconciliation. There are a lot of terms used within Scripture to define and to identify Christ followers. One of them, specifically by Paul in the second letter to, The church in Corinth is the word ambassadors. Uh, In my previous career, I worked primarily for the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of State. One of the jobs that we were doing for the Department of State is we were working with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to help improve the security around their pipeline system. So if you don't know, quick economics lesson, Uh, if uh, the oil of Saudi Arabia is not flowing, we are in trouble, just basis, right? So we we got to work with a a number of Saudi nationals, and so they came over to the US for a while, and we did a bunch of planning, and then a number of our teammates uh, went to Saudi Arabia to actually implement uh, the security system and some other measures that we had put in place. While we were there, we were made explicitly known that we were acting as representatives of the United States Department of State. Essentially, what they were saying is, "Please don't act a fool, because it doesn't reflect on you, because you're not primarily there as Joe Blue Citizen You. You're there as a representative, an ambassador of the United States federal government, and specifically the Department of State. In Christ, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ Jesus. To act on his behalf as the church. To speak on his behalf. It's why we call each other Christians. We may not know it, but most people for the history of time had Christian names. Literally, what that meant was that your name signified that you were a part of the body of Christ. That was your identity. And so when we call each other Christians, one of the things that we are saying is that when you speak, you speak on behalf of the resurrected Savior. And when you act, you act on behalf of the resurrected Savior. When you love, you love on behalf of the resurrected Savior, but we're not just ambassadors. Generically, Paul says this. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal Through us. We aren't just ambassadors willy nilly. We aren't just ambassadors saying whatever we want. We are ambassadors specifically for reconciliation. We speak on behalf of Christ to reconcile a dead and dying world to the Lord and also to one another, to be ambassadors of truth and peace. To bring peace, shalom, where once there was discord. Now here's why this becomes important. Because Paul says this about Onesimus when he sends him back to Philemon. He sends him back and he says this in verse 12 to Philemon. I am sending him, Onesimus, back to you. I am sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul refers to Onesimus as as his child in the faith, as his beloved one. And yet he is sending him back to Philemon in order that Onesimus and Philemon would be reconciled to one another. But this is a risky thing to do. Because Philemon had the legal right not just to punish Onesimus, but to put him to death. Onesimus had had, had committed a capital crime And yet Paul sends him back, and he doesn't even put some bounds around, okay, Onesimus, I'm going to leave this part up to you, but you certainly can't do this or that. You certainly can't put him in prison. You certainly can't put him to death. No, Paul simply says, I will not, out of compulsion, tell you what to do. And you know why that is? Because he knows that Philemon saved by the grace of Christ Jesus, is now an ambassador of Christ for reconciliation. Which means that His actions and interactions don't come from His own desires. They don't come from His own plans or His own preferences. But they come from the desires of Christ Jesus. Like Have you ever thought that way when you interact with people? Have you, have you ever thought, God, how would you have me to act with them on your behalf? Or here's a convicting one, moms and dads, gosh, this cuts me to the core. God, how would you have me speak to my kids on your behalf that they might hear your words and not mine? Or how would you have me serve them on your behalf, Christ Jesus, the way that you have served me? All our interactions are meant to lead to unity and they are all meant to be on behalf of Jesus. The Gospel makes us ambassadors of reconciliation. But going on, it also makes us a part of a growing family. Paul continues on, he says this in verse 15, For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Paul tells Philemon it's not just the Lord's desire that they, the two of them would reconcile, but that this journey of reconciliation would actually increase Philemon's joy. The the New Testament is littered with familial terms for us. Uh, Enough so that I was writing them down it it feels like the song, I'm My Own Grandpa. You ever heard that song? Okay, don't Google it, but anyways, right? It says in Scripture, we are children of God the Father in heaven. We are brothers to Christ Jesus. We are also, here's where it gets sticky, the bride of Christ Jesus, Right? We are brothers and sisters to one another, and we're also told that the Lord allows us in making disciples to have brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus also be children of ours in the faith. It gets confusing. But here's what's certainly clear in Scripture. There's no strangers or orphans in the kingdom of God. No one is isolated. No one is alone. We are all family members. And this dynamic moves and changes us. Because we're no longer simply sharing our faith to tell random people about the gospel. We're not just welcoming random people into the church. It means that when people come to faith, they come into our family. And listen, this is personal to me. This hits home. I have four adopted nieces and nephews. And I remember for each one of them, over months, praying that the Lord would bring them home, bring them into the family, that he would establish them deeply, that they would know that they would be deeply loved, deeply cared for, always a part of our family. And I've shared with many of you guys our story in adoption for Rachel and I. That we went a year and a half in an adoption process that fell apart at the end. And how a little girl that we had spent our lives, or that, or that period of our lives, pouring into, praying for, beseeching the Lord on behalf, didn't come into our family. Listen, we are a part of a family. And if, if you can't get your arms around sharing your faith, then, then get away from the abstract for a second and get towards the fact that there are brothers and sisters that the Lord is determined to adopt into your family that right now are still living as orphans rather than in the beloved family of God. We are a part of a family and it's meant to be an ever-expanding family. And that's why Paul is able to say to, Onesimus, who has been, or to Philemon, who has been wronged by Onesimus, It was actually good that he fled from you, that he parted from you. It's good for you because now you get to receive him back, not as a bondservant, but as a brother. You lost something, but what you gained was far better, a brother in Christ Jesus. The gospel makes us a part of a growing family. The gospel also makes us marked by forgiveness. <clears throat> if, I, if I said this to you, don't answer out loud. Answer in your own head, because typically this goes sideways and terribly wrong when we do this like congregational interaction thing. Right? I don't know what it is, but we're just not wired that way. Play to our strengths. The gospel is sufficient to cover all sin, but there are a few times in Scripture where Jesus tells us that there are certain things that will absolutely keep you out of His eternal presence. Can you think of one? Don't answer out loud. Don't answer out loud. Can you think of one? Can you think of a time where Jesus said, this will ensure that you're not in the kingdom. This will ensure that you don't have eternal life. One of the most shocking ones. He says directly after the Lord's Prayer. He teaches His disciples to pray and He says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Pray like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if You forgive others their trespasses, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, this verse doesn't mean that we are saved by anything other than the grace of the Lord alone. But it is showing us that there are certain things so foundational and fundamental to our salvation and our new identities in Christ Jesus, that there will not be, the Lord says, a single Christ follower who is not marked by this. That there ought not be a single Christ follower, not a single one that claims the blood of Jesus that is not marked by forgiveness. Why? Well, have you guys ever heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Right? We use it in counseling a lot. When you are hurt, you tend to operate out of that place. Well, guess what? Forgiven people forgive people. When we get our eyes around what we have been given through Christ Jesus, when we see the enormity of sin that has been piled up in between us and a holy God, and we watch Him wipe it away, by the sacrificial death of God in human flesh, Christ the perfect Son. There is absolutely no way that there can be any other response than to forgive another man or woman who though their sin may have been heinous against us is a pittance of what we have done in rebellion against our holy God. And it doesn't mean it's easy. I I want you to hear this. This is not me saying, so go do it. I am saying that. But not without wobbly knees. Because you know what? Forgiveness is costly. Sin inherently takes... Tim Keller uses a great analogy for all sin. He said, if you come over my house in a moment of anger, smash a lamp of mine and leave, there's only a couple ways to deal with this. Either you pay for the lamp, I pay for the lamp, or I go without light. Those are the only three options. Sin inherently takes... And we have a just God. And so it will be reconciled. So either the other person pays for it or we do. And forgiveness inherently says to someone else, I'll pay for it. Paul says this to Philemon. He says to him, if you need to, charge it to my account. I'll pay for it. I know that he has taken from you. But Paul is confident that Philemon, having been forgiven his entire life by Christ Jesus, will find that in the gospel he can even forgive those that have deeply hurt him and wronged him. Don't try and forgive until you have sat underneath of the weight and waterfall of grace that the Lord has given to you. in in preschool where uh, my kiddos have gone and the Barton's kids have gone over at First Baptist, they end their year um, for those graduating to kindergarten with a little ceremony. And a part of that ceremony is they have them memorize a Bible verse. Now, again, these are like four-year-olds, attention span, real short, memory span, real short. And so it's like, you know, like Jesus wept, right? It's like, you know, um, so Hattie, I will forever remember this verse, uh, mainly because she said it a million times around the house. First John four nineteen. We love because God first loved us. That's one of those like coffee cup verses that you like put on things, and you're like, oh, that's that's lovely, and that that's sweet. Grandma it on something or something. I don't know what macrame is. Right, but that's just like the way that we kind of flippantly describe it. But can I just say something? That's the logic of the gospel. You want to get your head around living as a Christ follower? Get your head around that one, like, six word verse. Why do we love? Because he loved us. Why do we forgive? Because he forgave us. Why do we serve? Because he served us. Why do we go out and and look for those that are lost? Because he came to us looking for those that were lost. We are a people meant to be marked by forgiveness because we have been marked by forgiveness. And by the way, short plug for the marriage study, this is exactly what we're going over in the marriage study. It's why it's called Loved and Be Loved, because I can diagnose your marital issues in mine right now. The reason that you don't love your spouse well enough is because you're not being loved well enough. And I don't mean by your earthly spouse, I mean by your perfect heavenly spouse. Well, he's loving you perfectly. You're just not receiving it well enough. The gospel makes us marked by forgiveness and finally it makes us powerful in prayer. Paul ends with this. I love this in verse 21. Confident of your obedience. Right? Don't mess this up, Philemon. Paul is confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time... Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Now, if you weren't here last week, Paul is writing this from prison hundreds of miles away. Air travel, not yet invented. Prison, oftentimes take a long time. And yet, Paul writes in a letter that had to be traveled by hand and feet hundreds of miles before it even got to the destination, having no clue if he was ever going to be released, says to Philemon, "Prepare a guest room for me." Now, again, Philemon had servants, so maybe he was fairly wealthy, but you know, like this is not five-bedroom, four and a half bath with finished basement type houses. So when Paul says to Philemon, "Hey, go ahead and prepare a guest room." because I'm hoping I can get out of prison and make my way hundreds of miles to see you, it's a pretty big request that he's making of Philemon. But then he says to Philemon, don't worry, here's why I know I'm going to be able to make my way to you. Why is it? He says, through your prayers. That's how Paul's going to escape prison. That's his big plan. And that's how he's going to transverse hundreds of miles and keep his commitment to come and have a nice little sleepover in the guest room that Philemon's already preparing. Now, again, I I say that a little glibly, but this is meant to be the way that we deal with and look at prayer. Maybe this is an odd confession, but as a pastor, and more than that, just simply as a man, uh, I have oftentimes wrestled deeply in discontentment around my prayer life. L- longed to be a man known of prayer. Longed to be it be my first go-to in every moment. And it, as Paul has said, has been a wrestling match oftentimes for me. But there's been a few moments where I have gotten into writing out, journaling my prayers. And it's some people, my wife is a journaler, and I'm so jealous. I, it, for me, it, it feels weird, odd, feels like it slows my brain down. Um, and so I don't do it very often. But every once in a while, I'll start journaling out and writing out my prayers. And then I'll watch the Lord answer them. And then I get to this place where I'm like, hey, anybody need anything? Because if so, just come ask me. I'll write it down. The Lord will give it to you. Like, and, and not even like flippantly, but just you just get that way. You're like, come on, bring it just whatever your request is, bring it to me. I'll write it in the magical prayer notebook that the Lord has given that I bought at Walmart for 75 cents, and psh, he's going to answer it. Right, we, get, we get pretty uncomfortable around prayer. And Jesus makes some big promises around prayer. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. <clears throat> Again, I say to you that if two of you will agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now listen, I I know I just referenced back to a story where I pleaded with the Lord for months and months and months. And he said no. And so I'm not flippantly simply telling you that the Lord is a genie on whose lamp you can rub, but what I am telling you is that our posture in prayer is meant to be so utterly confident that it can somehow match up with promises like that from Jesus. Such utter confidence in our Father, His power and His goodness, that if we are told no, that the only explanation we could possibly fathom is He's telling us no because He has something even better for us. That's the type of confidence in prayer that we are meant to have. You guys remember uh, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory? Right? Uh, Do you guys remember the the character Veruca Salt in that movie? Right? Like she's the super demanding girl that just goes around and is constantly saying to her dad, I want it! Daddy, I want it! Right? And everybody's like, man, that's an ungrateful little, you know? Nobody wants their kid to be like that. Listen, y'all people and me could use to be a lot more like Veruca Salt with the Father in heaven. A lot more could we go to Him and say, Dad, Dad, I want it. Because you know what? One, He knows you do. And two, if my kids, and the Lord Jesus says this, if my kids would come up to their earthly father, and say, Daddy, I want it. In the midst of my sin and brokenness as a human father, how much more should we go to our perfect heavenly father who has promised to use all things for good and not a single thing that is good keep from us? The gospel makes us powerful in prayer. Because we have the ear of God in heaven. In fact, we get to call him Abba, Father. Listen, for for 2,000 years, we have used the terms A.D. and B.C. to mark our calendars. Now, over the last five years, they've decided that they have to change it, right? But for 2,000 years, essentially, it meant A.D. Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord, in the year of our Lord Jesus, since his birth, And BC before Christ has been how we have marked history, which means that the birth and coming of Christ Jesus, the gospel, is historically the most transformative thing that has ever happened. Okay? And I know that you can call me kind of, you know, uh, Western focused and everything else, but it's just true. There has been no other person, no other event in the history of humankind. Come up and we'll grab a cup of coffee and we'll argue about it other than Jesus, his birth, death, and resurrection. It's changed the world. It's changed history. But more so, church, hear this, it's changed you. You. All those preconceived notions, all those who you used to be, gone. We move the calendar to year zero because of the coming of Jesus. You and I should be moving our lives to step zero because of the Gospel. Open-handedly saying to the Lord, You have changed everything about me. Will You help me now to see this new life that I have in Christ Jesus. Church, hear this. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. And so let's spend the rest of this life together figuring out just how drastically, beautifully, wonderfully the gospel has changed us. Let's pray.